Well, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning, and he's not a stranger to SOMA. If you've been part of SOMA for the last year, uh, in and out, a regular, uh, you probably have been here when uh, Daniel Flores has preached. He, he preached last year when I was on sabbatical, and then it's been great having him nearby so that when I've either been out of town or like today, um, I'm just having a Sunday off, he, he's available uh, to, to come and to share the Word of God. He's going to continue in our Hebrews series, and so... Uh, would you join me in welcoming our friend, Daniel Flores? Good morning, Soma. Good to be here again with you. Good to hear uh, the worship this morning here, Anderson. Uh, there are many uh, services where we've led worship together, so it's good to see you up there and hear you, and thank you for leading us, guys, in worship this morning. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's a privilege for me to be here, and as I was coming, coming to church today, and I was praying for Soma, praying for our time, this verse came to mind. I just want to share it with you, Ephesians 3, 17. It says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp, and this was the part that stood out to me, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's my prayer for you today, that you be filled with the fullness of God and his love. It goes beyond our imagination. And uh, I read something this week that said, uh, it was convicting, it said sometimes we need to repent of how much we undervalue or undermine the breadth of God's love. It is vast. And um, it's, it's always there. It's never changing. So I pray for you in that. And um, I thank you for praying for me as well. Um, some of you know that we're in transition. It's not really, to be honest with you, my favorite part of the ministry calling is seasons of transition as we're searching for a, a ministry and waiting on the Lord to kind of steer us in the direction he would have us serve the church. The church always has needs. So I know that there's, there's a place that God is preparing for us. Um, but uh, I really appreciate those of you who have, been, who have checked in on me and said, how are you doing? And we've been praying for you. Really love that. Um, even though the transition season isn't fun, um, you know, we model faith and we, we, love, we love the Lord and we know that he directs us. So I'm excited today to go into Hebrews 12. You know, sometimes when you, when you fill in, you, you, you get a passage like, wow, how do I do this? But Hebrews 12 is actually a fantastic passage. I told that to Paul yesterday. I was like, thank you for this passage. And he was like, you mean that sarcastically? No, I mean this for real. This is an amazing passage. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, we'll read that together. And I got, there we go. I might, I might jump the gun there. There we go. Thank you. Got my back. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The word of the Lord. This is one of those standout passages of the New Testament. It is likely that it's a memory verse. There's some memory verse that for many of us in here somewhere. Verses 1 through 2 are verses that I quote frequently. I come back to these verses often in my prayer life because of the encouragement that they offer us. And if this is not a memory verse for you, then I, I would strongly encourage you to make it one. We have to remember the book of Hebrews and who it was written to. And you remember this, this group, this community of early Jewish Christians And think about the social pressures that they were encountering in their day. You remember that in the Roman world, the Romans, these Gentiles, their government was sort of socially, they put a lot of social pressure on the Christians. And even there there would be some resulting persecution. They thought them to be strange. Interestingly, the Romans thought that Christians, they didn't call them Christians, but these obscure people that followed this guy, Crestus or Jesus, They have some weird beliefs. They're atheists. They don't want to follow our cultic practices of of honoring the emperor and our our gods. They they say those don't exist. And they have this weird practice of calling each other brother and sister, and then they intermarry, and there's like, that seems incestuous. That's kind of strange. And just to top it all off, they do this weird thing where they eat the body and drink the blood of their teacher. So they really became an excellent scapegoat for the Roman government, and they they were standouts of just some some weird beliefs. But not only was there this external social pressure to this early Jewish community, but there was also internal pressure from their own Jewish community that they had to endure. Because much of the Jewish community rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And this belief that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, was blasphemous to the, the, the mainstream of the community. And so they were ostracized from within their own community. So they went through some suffering. And they were hard-pressed. And I'm sure that at times through the pain because of their faith that they were tempted to just throw in the towel. They needed encouragement. And so one of the purposes of the book of Hebrews is, along with the warnings, it is with the purpose to give the ones who follow Jesus encouragement. We need it. You need to be encouraged. I need it. We need to be just comforted like we read about today, that that the Spirit is with us and that God is with us. And so I think about the challenges that we face. These are are words of encouragement and wisdom for us. You know, Christians... We are not of this world. 
So we're always going to feel a little bit like standouts. And sometimes as we live our faith, we might really um, encounter some challenges, maybe rejection. People treat us differently. Not only that, there might be internally some things that, you know, we, we would hope from, from God that, that are struggles in our lives, that are sufferings or pains in our lives. And we ask the question, where are you, Lord? Why am I going through this? We need encouragement. You know, you might be saying, oh, well, my life, I don't really suffer. I haven't really had a rough life. And praise God for that if that's you. If you don't resonate with what I'm saying that at times in your faith and in your life, you might have suffering or struggle. Praise God for that. That could be a blessing. But I do think that whether you've had sufferings and pain in your life or not, that to be a Christian is to be not of this world. We're, we're not, not citizens here. We're citizens of heaven. We're sojourners. We're journeying. We're, we're never really feeling settled here, are we? Well, you can live in a beautiful place. You can have a, an amazing home, a healthy family, great investments, a wonderful career, fill in the blanks, and there still be this like unsettled feeling, almost a sense of wanderlust. You know, California right now, and the place we live in California is so beautiful, but maybe a lot of us are thinking, wow, really, I could go somewhere else, right? But the, the, the fact of the matter is you can live anywhere. You can live in Idaho, or my, my mother-in-law's visiting us. She's been so helpful. She's been with us for the past couple weeks. Thank you, Joy, for being here, helping with our kids. From Montana. See what I'm saying? Like, we could say, let's go to Montana, and that'll make us feel like we're settled. And I'm sure, you know, you have a sense of that. It's a beautiful place. If you went to, their, to where they live, it's amazing. But as a Christian, we're always going to feel a sense of, like, not settled. So whether you experience suffering or pain, you're, you're certainly going to feel this sense of, like, mm, what, what, what is this? There's, it's like wanderlust. It's like a, not a full uh, satisfaction or peace. Now, I think peace really only comes from the Lord, a full, complete peace. And it is the fact that we are citizens of, of heaven. In fact, Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You ever feel poor in spirit and you have everything going for you? Well, it's because we're yearning for the kingdom of heaven. Still, this world is decaying. It's not as it should be. It's not an ideal. You know, uh, as I'm aging and things start hurting more, I'm realizing, you know, ibuprofen, I need more of that. <laughs> we're decaying. We're preparing for the place that is our true citizenship. So along the way, we need encouragement. And sometimes we need encouragement because even following Jesus and staying the course in the way, the truth, and the life, that in and of itself can be a source of pain, can't it? God might, um, you know, allow us to experience suffering or bring us into places and, and situations that are, that are challenging, that are hard for our faith. You know, there are people, there's this, this title that people identify with now, it's called deconversion, where people have, who have, and I don't like using the word conversion, but people who come to faith in Christ walk away. They deconvert, if you will, because staying the course is not given the peace that they've wanted. And so there's stories of this, and there's various reasons for why this occurs. But among them include, you know, maybe the hurts that you've experienced, not from the outside world of being not of this world, but being inside the community of the church, the thing called, like, church hurt. 
right? I call this Christian on Christian crime. You know, when maybe somebody in church unfortunately was the subject of gossip or they felt judged in church or there was just something that didn't sit right. And, and so that becomes this impetus and reason to kind of just walk away from that. In fact, I had one person tell me once, you know, um, I like Jesus, but, you know, the only thing wrong with church is people. It's like, you know, it's not the best way to look at church. We all have something that could cause discouragement in our lives in this experience of life. And so this message comes to us in the same way as it goes to the early Jewish Christian community, ostracized by their own, threatened by the external Gentile source of the government and all that. It's it's about being encouraged. Don't throw in the towel. Be encouraged. So if we go to verse 1, just look at where we start. It says, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses... And in the previous chapter, you read about what we call the Hall of Faith and this list of all of these these faithful ones. And I just went one too far ahead. I got a little trigger happy there. You'll have to bear with me as I kind of navigate all this up here. Since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses and we see all these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament and their stories that they saw this preparation of a promise that God was going to save and they believed God and they, you hear their stories. It's a survey of all these wonderful stories and their faith that God was going to save them. And even though they didn't see it, they died before they saw the fulfillment of that promise. They still believed. They were witnesses to how God was operating to prepare for the promise. And then the author in chapter 11 says, but we had something greater. We have something better. Here comes the encouragement. We have the promise. We have received it. You've received it. And now we join into the essence of that faith, their stories as well. They become a cloud of witnesses to us of that promise being fulfilled right now. We're surrounded by them, by their legacy and their story. And we are spurred on to keep going. We are to endure in faith as recipients of the promise. So how do we do that? How do do we endure? How do we have endurance in our faith? How do we maintain that the gospel is still the best news known to man that's worth living for? How do we maintain that? Well, the author says in verse 1, some prescriptions, some exhortations. Let us lay aside every weight and the clingy sin, this is my paraphrase, and run the race as an endurance runner. Again, I went too far ahead. Oh, thank you. This is new to me. Look at and it's super simple technology. There's only two buttons. <laughs> Backwards. There we go. There we go. Man, I, I'm letting the cat out of the bag with my pictures there too. He says, let us also lay aside every weight which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love the metaphor here. Uh, following Jesus is a journey. It is a movement. It's about being in process and in motion. We're on the move. You and I, we're traveling together. We're all on the move. And it's like a race. 1 Corinthians chapter um, 9 is also a corollary passage where Paul talks about athletes competing in a race and they're all running as if to win. That there's a finish line involved and they're running to get crossing the finish line. They're, that that metaphor is like the Christian life, like you're training to, to cross the finish line. It's coming. It's getting closer. But you only get there by training and, and running as if you're going to win and cross it. I love the metaphor of running 
as it connects and pertains to our Christian life. Do we have any runners here? Okay, one or two. Oh, not in here. Okay. Okay. I won't have her come in and testify to that. But if you're a runner, you can imagine, or if you're not, that you don't finish or win a race by sitting on the sidelines. And as a Christian, you have to see yourself as a runner, a long-distance runner. Sometimes we think of it as sprinting, but really it's a a long-distance race. This week, uh, and I just found out, Jim, we, we go to the same gym, um, Jim and the, at the gym. Uh, I was talking to one of the personal trainers there, and she tells me that this weekend she's running a 100K. I had never heard of such a thing. A 100K? What's that? <laughs> um, it's, called, it's an ultra marathon. Um, as if a marathon wasn't enough, right? Uh, we got to do the ultra marathon. Um, people actually sign up for that, an ultra marathon. Um, so I had to look this up. I looked up more about these kinds of races, and one of the articles that I found, it, this is, quote, what it said. It said, running a 100K is no joke. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, that's exact, because I thought it was a joke. Uh, 100 kilometers is 62.14 miles. I'm like, so you run that in a day? Or, you know, we, I can run that in two months, you know, over the course of, you know. But that's in one, one set, one race. And the article said that it requires an adjustment in your mindset. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> an adjustment in your mindset, your pace, and your fuel and hydration strategies. That seems so common sense and practical. Probably very hard to, like, actually implement now, I can't wait to find out when I come back this week, how did it go? She said, if you see me, like, this week and I'm, like, you know, barely walking, you'll know why. But what's interesting, because I know that that race is agonizing, the la- that's the language of verse 1 in Hebrews 12. It says, when it talks about the race that's before us, you know, run the race that's before you, you know the word for race in Greek? It's the word agony agony. It means contest or race. So if we want to talk about the change of mindset that needs to happen as we follow Jesus, it's not follow him and you're going to just have euphoria all the time. You're going to have pleasure all the time. No, you are an endurance runner and there's going to be some agony ahead. So there's a mindset that needs to change, but there is a finish line though too. So to have endurance, it goes on, it also says there, it says to lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. In the ancient world, you know, the athletes where marathons actually came from, the athletes who ran marathons, you know what? They ran naked. Now, I'm not going to suggest that today at all. There, there should be no such thing as naked church. Um, but they ran naked because clothing adds weight. And so in order to not distract from their energy and to optimize their performance, they ran in the nude. The idea of this is to say when when it's encouraging us to lay aside every weight, it's to think about those things that are actually good. Clothing's good. 
I'm so glad you're wearing clothes today. <laughs> but lay aside every weight. Thank you. Lay aside every weight is to consider those things that are actually maybe good in your life that have too much weight. They're taking too much energy from, from you and your performance and your faith as you have this long run ahead of you. So as I think about that, you know, it's easy to think about weights that are negative, the things that stress us out, the things that, you know, you need to just get rid of, like you're spending too much time on certain things that are in your schedule and there's no value and you need to get rid of that. But what about things that are good, things you spend your time on, that are weights in your life and they are valuable, but they're hard to have the right prioritization of? One of the first examples that comes to my mind is being a parent. Parents, you get this. Our wonderful kids, right on cue, they can be a weight, can't they? They're a good weight. Kids are a blessing. The scripture says kids are a blessing. I love my kids. I want the best for my kids. I want them to be safe. I want them to be healthy. I want to protect them. I want them to be successful adults. Jolene and I, we, we, we worry for them sometimes. We, we, want, we see who they are. We want them to, to have everything they need to be healthy. They are a blessing. But if we're honest, you know, our society, we idolize kids. You know, and we spend a lot of time with things that are oriented towards kids. Our economy is built on that even. You know, when we first moved to Healdsburg, here's a great example. When we first moved to Healdsburg, you know, the number one question that was repeated to us over and over within the community, most people that were in our church, not in the church, people's number one question, first question almost before anything else, where do your kids go to school? And not that that's a bad question, and not that that's like an unimportant question, but it was like at the top of the list. And the answer says everything too, right? It helps us to know like how you, how, you know, size you up a little bit. <laughs> so it's easy for us to, to idolize them and, and our identities can even become overly wrapped up in them. Some parents, some parents will even have identity crisis when they have an empty nest, right? And, and, you know, it's like, what do I do now? You know, some of us not so much, you know, when they leave, it's like, Great, have a great time. I'll be here if you need anything. Call, call in ahead to the door might be locked, you know. Um, Godspeed. This may not be a weight for you, but we all have something that we give weight to that could distract us from the race that is set before us. And so it does have to do with our mindset. What do you have your mindset upon? Is it a career that's the good weight and you've overly prioritized that? Relationships, spouses, etc. If it's something that distracts you from Christ, the exhortation in order to help us have endurance and keep running is to put it aside or put it, give it its proper weight in your life. Otherwise, um, your faith will be strained. Your, your connection identity with Jesus will be strained in ways that it does not need to be. So the second thing he also says to lay aside, or the author says to lay aside, is that clingy sin, that sin which clings so closely. Now, sin is always a temptation. It's always close to us. It's, it's not a seasonal thing. It's a daily thing. It's a regular thing. We have to sacrifice our sinful urges sometimes a thousand times over in a day. We mortify the deeds of the flesh. And we also surround ourselves with healthy influences that encourage us to do the same, you know, things that... Um, people and uh, material we consume, uh, things that help us to, to mortify the flesh and to, to, you know, lay aside the sin. 
um, that we not do the things we hate. So that part we get, I feel like that's almost self-explanatory. But here's the part that's important. So as we're laying those weights aside, verse 2 says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is an empowering description of Jesus. Look to him. He's the founder of your faith. He started it. And he's the one making it perfect. This is his work, this race, this work that he's doing in us. It's his work. It's not ours. He's the one making us perfect before God. That's the gospel. Remember the gospel. He said, he crossed the finish line and said, it is finished. You know, uh, he, he, he gave himself up to God's will. And now we look to him for that same empowerment. And this is the part that really is, is so critical. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, when I see that, you know, I think about what we despise. You know, this is a memory verse for so many of us. You know, you think about the, also the joy that was set before him. And you think about those two things, the joy and the, the things, the despising of shame. Now, the joy we understand, the joy is, you know, salvation, redemption, that he had it in his, his eye that he was reconciling humanity to God, that there would be a peace recovered, the promise would be fulfilled. That brought him joy. That was what was set before him, past the finish line, the reward. But this despising element is, is interesting. It says he despised the shame, despising the shame. He endured, though, despising the shame. Now, how do you respond when you despise something? When you despise something, typically you avoid it, right? Despise the DMV. I despise Walmart, you know, if I'm driving up 101, just let Shiloh Road off-ramp pass me by. It's a good day. <laughs> you avoid what you despise. But when you look at the wording here, maybe the better way to translate this should say, he thought less of the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he thought less of the shame. Because Jesus actually did not avoid the shame, did he? He didn't. If you go to his agony, if you go to the night that he was betrayed, there he is in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to the Father. He says, if there's any other way, please take this cup of wrath, take this from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And he knew what was coming, that cup of wrath being the judgment of God, right? And we think about what he endured. He went through the mocking, the betrayal, the abandonment. You know, he, he went through the beating. He went through the piercing. He was hung. And through that whole thing, hanging there, dying, the scripture tells us that he was beaten and marred beyond the image of humanity, that he was so badly beaten. That's shameful. And he didn't avoid it. When it says he despised it, it's not that he avoided it. It's that he thought less of it. It's almost like a comparison that when you see for the joy that was set before him, which is redemption of you, of me, to God, that's the finish line, restoring us from this decaying world and this decaying body and the sin that's such a heavyweight, the joy of taking that away from us doesn't even compare, I think, less of the shame that I have to go through because I love them so much. 
that I'm going to accomplish that. And so his words are, it is finished. And before that, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. When he could have retaliated because of the shame. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so that's the encouragement given to us here in just these first two verses. You know, it's a lay aside the weight and look to him who crossed the finish line, who was victorious. There was no 50-50 that the shame could have won out and he would have just given up. The victory is there. We win. He won. It's because of his work. And he's perfecting that work in your story, in your faith journey, in your agony, in your run. He's perfecting that in us. It says in verse 3, that we are to consider him who endured such hostility so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. God does not want us to become weary or faint-hearted. Interestingly, these are words, these are words that mean um, the Greeks would use them for athletes who collapsed before finishing a race. Same words. So I imagine a marathon runner who's just on the side and they didn't finish the race and they're like, you know, they're probably heaving and they're, they, they can't walk and they're, you know, probably expelling things. And, you know, you've seen, I've seen pictures of that. That's the image of weary and faint-hearted. And in your spiritual life, in the agony that, uh, uh, ahead of you, God doesn't want you to grow weary in that way because Jesus won. He already passed the line. So he will perfect your faith. And this is the purpose, I, th- I think that there's a lot of the purpose of Hebrews right in here, in this, in this verse, is to encourage you. You know, through whatever you face, the sufferings you face, he will perfect your faith. You will finish. Jesus said, so we think about this mindset change, long distance run. Jesus said, we, we need some hydration, don't we? We need some fueling. He said, I'm the living water. He who comes to me will never first. So let Jesus hydrate you. He said, I'm the bread of life. He's our fuel. So feed on, on his word. And commune with him. His spirit counsels us. And I love still the image of the host of the witnesses surrounding us. You know, it's, it's the examples of faith that we have to lean on that trusted God's promise. Even if they didn't have it, they trusted it. We have it. How much more should we keep going? That's why I need the church. That's why as hard as it is, you know, to follow the call to ministry, Paul knows, it's, it's not always a walk in the park. But I, I believe God. And I want to be in part of this, the church. And I want to see him work in it. And I can't wait to see what he builds through us, even as the world around us seems to decay. So then the author of Hebrews gives this final kind of um, encouragement, at least in this section, to remind of how to endure, uh, to remind us of how to endure. Verse 5, it says, God addresses you as sons. God addresses you as sons. And there's a quote there from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through uh, uh, 12, 11, 13, 12, 13. There you go. There it is. 11, 12. There it is. Um, Basically, that God disciplines the one whom he loves. And that basically God is addressing them as his children. God addresses you as a child. So if you believe that, turn to your neighbor and say, I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. Now, we who believe that, as we say that, you know, we're so accustomed to thinking that way, it might come across as something that we almost take for granted. But when the author of Hebrews is telling the audience, 
don't forget, God addresses you as sons. That's not something that they would have immediately thought of. They were hesitant to refer to themselves as children of God. You know, though God identifies and reveals himself in the Old Testament as the father of Israel, there are only a handful of verses where Yahweh is described as God's uh, father. He, he's not really described a whole lot as father. And so Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he was talking to God personal. He would address God as his father. And he would train his disciples to address God as father. And he got a lot of flack for that. He was criticized for that. He made people mad because you don't call God who is holy, Yahweh in heaven, your father. But the truth of the matter is that's who we are. He's adopted us. We are legitimate children. And this agony, this suffering, these challenges that you're going through is part of the discipline of God allowing your faith to grow stronger. It shows that you belong to him. Sometimes we think that when we follow God, nothing bad should ever happen to us, and we might even ask the question when it does, God, I thought if I was going to follow you, you would bless me, protect me, and all that. Sometimes it's the opposite. These are the things that reveal to us that God loves us, and he allows these things to help us deepen our intimacy with him, to trust him through the challenges. Um, You know, Jolene and I have this description of a style of parenting that we try to avoid. Uh, We call it free-range parenting. Um, So I grew up on a a ranch, and uh, a small ranch, and, you know, we had chickens on a ranch, and we never free-ranged them, Um, you know, so they were fat, happy chickens. They were awesome. But, you know, it was a rural community I lived in when I would walk maybe to the bus stop or something, some of our neighbors did free-range their chickens. And um, every now and then you would see a free-range chicken kind of, and this is so funny because literally chicken crossing the road, like that joke, that, that was my neighborhood. Um, and the free-range chickens, you could always pick them out. They were really runty looking. You would never want to have an egg from a, from a free-range chicken. It probably wouldn't taste very good. Runty, and they wouldn't last long because predators would get them. So the idea of free range is you just let them go, do what they want, let them roam, and then maybe they come back at night and give them a place to sleep. So there's a philosophy of parenting that kind of matches that. It's where we, we don't give certain age-appropriate boundaries to our kids and we just kind of let them do what they want because the value is this will cause them to be very creative. It will cause them to be um, resourceful, adventurous. They'll, they'll adjust as adults who will be very secure in themselves. Um, in my opinion, it can do the opposite. It can actually cause insecurity. It can even, or it can cause um, the deficit of just thinking that the world revolves around you because you get to do what you want all the time. Anyway, I digress. Why am I saying this? Uh, as, as I think about this idea of free-ranging, you know, God is not a kind of parent who free-ranges. Um, he doesn't just let, let us go and figure it out. Go figure out your race. Go figure out this life. The word that's there for discipline, as it's translated in Greek, uh, is connected to this word, I have it up there for you, piedon. Um, Piedon was like one of the, when when I was reading the text, um, I was surprised to find this word because there's different words for discipleship in the Greek. And um, this was, Pidon was, Pidos was one of the first words that I learned when I was studying Greek, and it simply means child. 
It means um, boy or girl, like young one. And so as it's used here that God disciplines, as it says it more than once, it quotes the proverb and then it repeats it. The, the idea is child-rearing, that, it, it's, that God's discipline of you isn't as you may think of it. When you see the word discipline, you think of like the rod. You know, you think of a parent handing spank, spankings and you think of the, the consequences and the structure, right? The idea here of child-rearing is intentionality. It's God's not free-ranging you. He's not neglectful. He's got purpose for your life, and he allows the things that come into your life to kind of steer you, to drive you, to to reveal himself to you because he loves you, because you belong to him. So if you aren't in pain, if there are times where you're not suffering or your will is not being put on the back burner, then it would show you're illegitimate. But if there are times when you feel it, you feel the strain of your faith, and you sometimes just want to take a break and sit down, God loves you. That, that's almost showing more that his love is right there with you. And that's where I need someone to come alongside of me, too. This is where the church comes in to say, hey, come on, I, I know where you've been. I've been there, too. Let's go. Let's keep walking. Let's just take a small step together. We'll get there. The finish line is closer today than it was yesterday. So discipline is, is, uh, is supposed to show God's stamp of, of adoption upon us. We are not illegitimate children. And his will will become greater in us. The whole point of all this, and uh, the author of Hebrews will go more into this uh, a little later in the chapter, is that we share in God's holiness. As, along the way, we're being prepared for resurrection, We're being prepared for eternal life. We're being prepared for his holiness that we'll be enveloped in on that day. The the challenge is the pain that's preparing us. He wants you to share in his holiness. And then later it says that we bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that along the way you have a peace of righteousness in your life. So to summarize all this up, what is this text telling us? How do we maintain the faith? How do we maintain that the gospel really is good news, that it's worth living for? Number one, God just wants you to not be weary and weakened in your soul. Though you go through sufferings, it's a form of discipline, and it shows you that, number two, God loves you more than we imagine, more than we can realize. He treats you as his own legitimate children. Let's not take that for granted, that I can say I'm a child of God. Let's not take that for granted. And God wants you to share in his holiness. He wants you to be like him as he is holy. I think part of how we um, are getting there, um, if there's another way I'd summarize this, is to say, let's travel lighter. So you could also turn to your neighbor and say, travel light. Travel light. Throw off excess weight. You're a child of God. He has great things ahead for you. I love this passage, memory verse. Let me pray. Thank you, God, for your word that does encourage us. It instructs us, it helps us to remember the bigger picture. Some days, Lord, um, we are day-to-day and feeling in survival mode. I know I've had a few days like that. I've seen colleagues and others with that same feeling. But God, in the bigger picture, there's, there's a, an image of life, of victory, of your will being done, of, of 
us having unfettered free fellowship with you, God. And uh, those are not things to be taken um, just as something we dismiss. They are powerful. Fill us again today, God, with your spirit. Keep us looking towards the finish line. And today we look to Jesus. And if there are those moments where we do feel like we're weary, Jesus was, was wearied, but he, he kept moving. He, he didn't despise the shame. He didn't avoid it. The joy was in front of him. Joy awaits us. And so for that, God, we worship you, and, and we know that you continue to surround us with your grace, your kindness, and the good work of Christ in our lives. Thank you for so much, church. May you protect this church from the schemes of the enemy. God, may you build them up uh, to maturity, to share in your holiness, and to be a bride prepared for the, for the great wedding of, of Christ and uh, the celebration that awaits. We pray all these things in his wonderful name. Amen.